This is the Land Legacy Podcast, brought to you by Whitetail Properties Real Estate. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your weekly resource for habitat management, wildlife management, and recreational real estate. We hope you guys enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome back to Land and Legacy Podcast here. I'm, uh, this is Adam. I'm headed down the road once again. You heard last week's podcast. I was talking to Hunter Johnson driving down the road, and it's the same road trip. But this time I'm joined by Kyle and Frank. And uh, I don't. we're all buzzing in, so none of us can see each other. So, uh, Kyle, thanks for joining us. Where are you at in the world? Um, at my house in Bolivar, Missouri. There you go. Frank, you there? Same. Not at Kyle's house, but I'm at my house. <laughs> Yeah. In the Osho, just got done eating some crappie, so life's pretty good. Oh, there you go. Um, who gave you the crappie? Oh, ho, ho. <laughs> good one. Oh, oh snap. I actually, I actually went and caught a limit this morning without Kyle by myself. So. Oh, man, look I at you. I know it. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm proud of you. You must have learned from the, the master himself. Self, did, self-proclaimed. Right. Right? That's right. That's right. Don't forget it. Oh, that's funny. Well, um, you know, one of these things, uh, guys, uh, it's, it's, we're kind of winding down on food plots, and my goodness, it's hot. But uh, I want to give a shout out to Stratton C to help support this podcast. Uh, fall food plot season will be here before we can even blink. I mean, a lot of guys start planting some of the brassicas next month in July. Um, and that'll be here. So I know fall planning coming up. So if you guys want, are interested in some of the awesome blends that we've helped create with Stratton Seed, go check out GoStrattonSeed.com. Um, so we're going to continue something that we've discussed a lot uh, recently this spring. And it's a pretty interesting um, time in the world of turkeys and turkey population trends. And um, we wanted to discuss with Kyle and Frank, because I can't remember, fellas, have we talked? Uh, I know you've been on the podcast a lot this spring, but have we talked much on um, turkeys, turkey population, uh, and, and some research this, this spring with you guys? Not really. Yeah. No. We've talked. I know we've been a lot. We've done a lot of podcasts, but I couldn't remember that we've covered yeah. this specific one. Well, it's yeah. kind of. It's kind of timely. Um, there was a big, oh, the every five-year wild turkey symposium happened last year. And anyway, they published all the papers from it, and that just came out. And so it's kind of timely. There's a bunch of stuff in there um, that gets right at the heart of the turkey turkey question. So nice timely podcast. Yeah, and we'll try to link some of that on social media so people can read some of this research that we're going to reference on this. And I don't think any of it's going to be earth-shattering, um, given that some of the some of the people in the in the article that you're going to reference have been on this podcast and shared some of the research. Um, so it should not come at any surprise. But we have covered a few things recently, uh, me in particular, that has gotten some uh, some good and also some uh, um, debating. Um, if you will, and and I I don't know about you guys, 
But every once in a while when you start saying something and there's some guys turning heads and saying, I don't agree with that, you're kind of going into a territory where you're like, oh, okay, there, there's, some, there's, some time, there's some room for growth here. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, I, I, and so I don't know if you guys saw it. Um, I'm sure you did uh, with as much time that you guys spent on social media, correct? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, for for the listeners that haven't seen that, um, I posted two videos recently. Of uh, one was covering um, clover. It was a perennial clover plot, and the other was a annual plot that had a lot of cereal rye in it. And I discussed, uh, and I'll, I'll discuss one of them, and I'll let you kick into it. Uh, Kyle first and then Frank you can back him up and then we'll swap on the next one but when I was discussing the uh, the cereal rye in the annual plot this was a plot that we had um, planted Stratton's Legacy Blend in last fall pretty good stand even though it wasn't as thick as it should be based on the fact that we put it in the ground and September's turned into a a completely dry month um, it, it was still pretty good but the point being, it was when we're when we're if the goal was turkey poult brood rearing habitat, that wasn't it. That was that was some might say good, I would say mediocre, but it was not great and it was not excellent. And and in these times I feel like I want I'm shooting for great everywhere I go because the turkeys are struggling, and they shouldn't be. They, they wouldn't be happy with us settle, settling for mediocre. And um, so, Kyle, give us a little. You know, when you saw that video, what were your original thoughts? Anything you wanted to add to that? Whenever, uh, yeah. when it comes to a brood. Yeah, I think first off, we need to recognize. You know, when we keep talking about poults, and that's that's a long period of time. And there's a big difference in the age of poults and what they need and what they can do and and what they can't do. So, you know, when you, you were referring, referencing poults, right now in Missouri, we're, you know, we've had nests hatching, had some probably hatching in the last, over the last month. So we should have everything from month-old poults to a day-old poults. And so there, there's this big difference, and we need to qualify that. Those first week or two weeks old they can't thermal regulate so if they get wet they're at the mercy of you know getting hypothermia they're at the mercy of the nighttime low temperatures um uh, daytime you know first thing in the morning low temperatures so that that's a big issue and i i didn't even talk to you before you made that video but i have no doubt that's what you were referencing is hey these pults get wet they can't handle it, and they can't navigate through some of that stuff. Yeah. It, I have that exact same blend on my farm, and I did not plan it with any thought in mind of, man, this will be awesome for poults in their first two weeks of life. That's right. That That's not why I plant that legacy blend where I plant it. That's, so I think that's an important thing. Now, you know, would a... The way my legacy blend looks right now, would if I had a five-week-old pulse, would they maybe pick around on some of that? Yeah, 
probably be able to move through it a little better. I got some really crappy ground, so I don't have great stand either. So, um, but. yeah. And I, I think that's too that that's where I was when I got in these these guys commenting and having said, "No, I don't agree with that." It was like, "Well, let's break down what you're thinking." We're generalizing pulse here, like we're just saying all pulse are the, are created equal. When when that video, and it's specifically when I shot that video, you have to think that most pulse on average are pretty young we're not talking a month old poult there like most of the poults are fairly young in on that farm and in this region and so we have uh annuals that were planted in the fall that are as rank as they're going to be in the year they're they're pollinating the you know the 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 clovers are thick the turnips are still coming on and starting and just past bloom so they've really bolted all of our cereal grains are as tall and starting to head out, pollinating, and they're getting ready to start decaying and falling down if we weren't to plant them. So that's as thick as this thing can get, and yet we're going to hatch out young little, bigger than a bumblebee, but tiny little tiny little chicks, and they're not going to be able to use it. So I'm looking at that going, this is, this is not usable space when we're looking at a young, less than two-week-old poult. That's the point yes. of this. And well, and one one other quick thought on that too: the height of that blend. You know, at this at that time of year, first of June, say, you know, that rye and the oats and the wheat, that's way taller than a hen's head. She does not want to be where she can't see. Yeah. With one week old poults, so that's another problem. Not only the thickness, but she can't see out of it. So yeah, right. And there's there's a there's also a fundamental problem of try to walk through that plot in your leather boots without Gore-Tex protection first thing in the morning, and you're going to get soaked. Your pants are going to get soaked. Same thing. It's So even if it didn't rain that night, you get a heavy dew, and we've had some really heavy dews this year. It's just the same as getting downpoured on for those, for those, for those pulps. They're going to get wet. First thing in the morning, if, if it's chilly, I mean, we had some 55, 54 degree nights um, and a dew, dewy field on a cold morning like that, that spells trouble for a, a chick that's, you know, 10 days old. So yeah. those rank fields, not only can they not navigate them, if they get in, they get hung up and they get wet, um, they're at the mercy of not being able to thermoregulate and and they're they're just they're just not ideal at all for you know anything other than a you know maybe a four to five week holt maybe yeah even if, if the hen will even take them in there yeah it's mediocre or good but it's certainly not great yeah and right I, and, and to me you have to think about to me is when we really get into the nitty-gritty of turkey management, turkey habitat management, just trying to manage for a healthy population. When you get for me especially like as as I've really started looking at this over the last several years and on my own farm, I see a bigger 
what did they used to say? What's best or what's good for the bird is, or I forget the phrase that you say, but good for the goose was good for the gander. <laughs> Not the phrase I was thinking, <laughs> but you know, a lot of times people say what's good for the deer is good for the turkeys. Uh, and yeah, I'm like, no. that's not true. I, the the no. older I'm getting, the more I'm looking at all this, the more I'm saying there is a big difference between managing mm-hmm. for healthy turkey populations and and deer. You can have amazing deer property and have an amazing deer on it and not a turkey on it or very yeah. sparse turkeys. Right. But <laughs> it's going to be very hard to have really good turkey population and a healthy turkey population, really good habitat, and not have good deer. Yep. Yeah. And so when well, I when I'm looking at these turkeys and I, I picture a ladder, if you're going to go climb a ladder, you have to start on the first rung and you go to the second rung and you go to the third rung and you go to the fourth rung and those rungs start out as successful nesting. We have to have yeah. we have to have eggs on the landscape and those eggs have to hatch, and then we move up to the next ladder or next rung and we say less than two week old poults. That's what we're shooting for. We we have to we have to keep them on this rung and get enough momentum to get to the next rung. And the next rung we're going to go to the the two to three week old poults. And then we're going to go to four to five week old poults. And we're just going to keep getting them a little older and a little older and a little older. And what I noticed in those videos that I posted was there was a uh, a pretty generalized conversation about poults in the summer hanging out in fallow food plots. And it's like, no, the point of this is small poults, little bitty yeah. guys. And that's that's what we're missing. We're, we're yeah. thinking, okay, we're thinking fifth rung on the ladder. But we have to focus yeah. on the first couple of rungs to get to the fifth rung. And if we can get sure. more up those first few rungs, we'll have much more, uh, we'll have many more turkeys. Right. And, and that is... Super, super critical. Those, those super young poults. And I say this because we have a across the range of the eastern wild turkey. We have a fundamental problem with nest success. We see it everywhere. There's, there's a fundamental problem with chronically low nest success. And this study that we'll reference here in a little bit. Nest success, nesting success across five or six sites from Texas all the way to South Carolina averaged 21%. So think about that. 20, only 21% of the, the, the nests hatched. Um, we see the same thing in Missouri and, and studies in, that were done in North Missouri, just terrible nest success. So that makes every net, every egg that does hatch that much more critical that we get those pults because they're already starting with a low number of poults anyway. So we've got to make – so those poults are super extra critical than, say, they're much more critical than if we had 56% nest success. And you could afford to lose a few more poults because you're swamping the area with with a lot of poults. So those poults, those newly hatched poults, are, are just so important given our chronic nest success problem. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, when I picture, I don't know about you guys, but when you think about 20% of the nests making it, 21%, I I look at it like this, because I think we've all seen, and you don't even know where I'm going, so buckle up. Um, We've all seen those National Geographic or those those really cinematic 
uh, wildlife programs where the turtle eggs on the beach start hatching, and this sea of tiny little turtles is going to the going to the ocean. And in that, that's when it's like birds and lizards and all these other crabs and all these things start showing up. And they're just devouring these tiny turtles. But all those little eggs hatched, so it just swamped the beaches. So there's a good amount that make it to the ocean and, and can go out and live their life, come back, lay eggs, and create the future generation. But with turkeys, it's like the eggs aren't even hatching. It's, it, it is just like they're not hatching or in those as soon as they break out of the eggs, they're getting killed. So there's not yeah. many, in, in, in comparing it to the turtles, there's not many of them ever making it to the ocean. Yeah. They're, they're starting out behind the eight ball, and, <laughs> and it's just a fact. And we're not uh, – our fix isn't – in most cases, we're not going to significantly change nesting success at this point. That's a huge argument, of course, and regarding trapping and everything. And I'm a trapper, and I'm not going to go down that road right now. But um, we're, we're not going to make a massive – we're not going to move the needle on nesting success. Even with some really good habitat work, we're not going to push that to 50%. It's not yeah. possible. That's we, right. We've got to increase brood survival. That's the most limiting factor across the range of the eastern wilder. Do you guys happen to know back in the let's say the nineties, what was the nesting success of the wild turkey? Like oh, in Missouri? I, that's a good question. I mean, I I don't know. It was certainly so you the standard answer was, you know, game birds hatch at about thirty to forty percent, thirty-five to forty percent. Kyle, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's kind of a standard game bird answer whether you're talking quail or turkey or whatever so that that it was ingrained in my training you know a long time ago so the i think it must have been around so that that had to come from somewhere mm-hmm. um which still isn't you know, i mean yeah 30 to down to 21 yeah, isn't that huge yeah, I, no now look at instances where turkeys were expanding like in kansas or nebraska if you look at where they were experiencing you know huge population growth i bet you were up 50 percent or higher in some of those because you had you know less predator abundance you had you know this whole population dynamics um that goes on so i bet you find some studies where where you were approaching 50 percent or better in these newly expanding populations well keep in mind too your breeding stock so in 1998 there was i can assure you in parts of missouri there was three times as many hens plopping down a nest yeah so even if it was 21 percent then if you had three times as many nests as we have now, and I'm saying that because we have 33, 35% in some counties of the turkeys that we had in the 90s, right? Yeah. If, we, if we're down 50% or 65%, so your breeding capital already, you're starting out with fewer nests anyway. Yeah. So it's this is all exponential. It's just this spiral yeah. in the exponential. 21% nest success back then is different than 21% nest yeah, success Yeah, if you had 300 now. nests, 
300 nests instead of 100 nests, well, that makes a big difference of how many bolts hit the landscape. So, no doubt. I, I, I think, though, that overall, this is chronically low from what we've ever experienced probably in the turkey yes. world um, yes. since, since the restocking efforts. Yeah, no this doubt. Is uncharted territory. Yeah. Well, one of the other videos I posted was this perennial clover, which you guys know I, I advocate for perennial clover food plots all the time. Almost every single this, farm I've written I, a plan for has perennial clover. Yep, I got it on my farm. Exact same mix. <laughs> and and I love like, it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. amazing. But yep. in, in regards to a young poult and even later on a poult, it's not, it's not I, I'm not putting it out for poults. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just admit. Yeah, you're you're admitting, like, hey, we're not bad mouth and Stratton revival or no. any other clover alfalfa mix. That's great for what we're using it for, but just don't be misled that this is going to save your turkeys because that's not the fix. Yeah, and and it, uh, because you see turkeys there during turkey season, yeah, I, like I think that's the biggest thing we need to help people learn and be educated on is some of the places like that we kill turkeys in the spring. We shoot them in closed canopy forest, north slope, big park-like setting timber, and it's beautiful, and we think it's amazing. But if that's what our farm looks like, that's not going to pr- produce a lot of turkeys. And then if we also have big, thick stands of annual plants in the fall and then uh, thick stands of... Uh, of uh, um, perennial clover it's going to be hard on a turkey yeah sorry yeah, we fellas. have I, other i got a little we distracted got, i just went through a horrific wreck here on i-24 <laughs> oh wow. we've got to have other options right i mean we you can't rely on this is this two acre food plot even if you made your food plot into something perfect brood habitat for and let's say it was time just right, and it's perfect for one- and two- and three-week-old poults. Okay, fine. But is that an acre of your property, two acres? But you, you can't rely on it to all happen in, in this confined space. Yeah, right. It's got to be bigger than that. Right. Absolutely. And, and good brood habitat is super important to hens. Now, some of this research, one particular paper shows that Hens will revisit good brood patches over and over again, um, probably for a couple reasons. One, it's got good resources, and probably two, there's not a whole lot of it around, so they've got to keep going back to the same well, and that could lead to all kinds of problems. You know, if you if predators figure that out and key in on it, so it's important as Kyle was trying to. I think the point he was trying to make is. You've got to have acres of it scattered around your property so that they don't have to travel far to get to it and that they can spend and, and they can go through this patch one day and then go to another patch another day or, or however they do it instead of spending all their time on the same patch because that's all they all they can find. And, and one of the key things that they found is just exactly what we've been preaching is these these sparse annual um herbaceous habitats that have bare ground that's got these umbrella type plants where the hens can see it over it stays fairly dry dries out 
man, these are what these are what these chicks, these are what these hens are looking for, um, and they're revisiting them over and over again. So it's um, kind of the first of its kind of as far as the paper is looking at how and do hens revisit the same brood patch over and over and and like yeah these herbaceous habitats they do but hardwood forest no they don't revisit those ever they may go through them but they're not revisiting so that tells us that that's poor brood habitat the hens go through it say ah oh, this sucks and we're out yeah so it's almost like you want to ask these poults tell t- i want a turkey poult to write the story of its first year of life of all the places they saw, and they may say, I passed through closed canopy forest once, but we didn't go back there till the fall when acorns dropped. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, Frank mentioned in hardwood forest, the listeners need to keep in mind, we're not saying any oak hickory timber is bad. That's that's considering closed canopy hardwood forest. You know, right. uh, a wood, more woodland, which is what we would prefer to manage for burned, thinned, a whole different ball game. That's yeah. that's the kind of sites that they're revisiting. And or uh, this paper talks about some stands, you know, l- less canopy um, talks about even the, the lower pine. Of course, you're down in the southeast and some of this lower pine density. Well, sure. You know, more open. So now they're kind of into some old field, you know habitat it sounds like in this paper that dr collier and dr chamberlain wrote um, yeah. those those sites getting revisited every yeah. day so right right mixed pine hardwood low density stuff pine plantation no and then closed yep. canopy forest is a no-go it's because there's just there's just not the herbaceous resources that are there but dang go through most of the southeast and and that's what you see or no something on the other spectrum which is you know pool table type stuff yeah yeah it's either crop or overgrazed pasture or pine straw yeah right yeah and then you go up here in the like i th- I feel like the southeast is so close to being pretty good just in tweaking some of the management and they could go and say okay well this pine plantation we're gonna now the research i think dr will goldsby is gonna they're working on it right now and it's gonna come out soon but from what i've been reading it looks like knocking that basal area down burning Mm -hmm. it managing it with fire is is really productive now the value the value from the landowner the the timber value goes down a bit but if you can if if the landowner's willing to sacrifice that little bit, especially if you're a timber uh, timber company, you could make it back on a increase in lease prices, because you could you could lease it out the hunting rights, and because you're managing for a wildlife background too, you're going to have more wildlife. Then therefore, uh, the size of the deer may go up, the caliber of the the quail hunting may go up. So you yeah. may be able to make money back on the leasing from the hunters if if you go that route. But um, yeah. I noticed that they're talking about um, uh, when I when I say they're just a little bit off. It's like those loading docks, those those logging decks, or wherever they're dragging the logs. Those could be turned into wildlife openings, and not letting the grasses grow up thick. Opening up, lowering that BA, managing with fires. Like man, you're almost there to what they're yeah. talking about. 
in this research. Yeah, that's that's right. And you're right about the southeast. And I think even the Ozarks, to some extent, in my mind, they're they're closer than, let's say, a predominantly fescue pasture system, because with a little thinning timber sale and some fire, they're on their way. Yeah. And a fescue pasture system, you got a lot more work to do. Um, so, yeah, that if we can turn the needle or or, or move the needle somehow to get more disturbance and that's i think the southeast is like you said is closer than some large stretches of the fescue belt where sometimes you think man how are we going to turn this thing around uh, and, you know, and, and i'll speak on my experience on that and and just just last year alone you know a lot of times when we talk about managing for fescue or managing pastures and how we could incorporate a wildlife component of it it's integrating some legumes, some of these clovers or alfalfa or even chicory or plantain, something that's not a fescue, uh, a fescue plant, and incorporating those. And then the grazing. Uh, just last year alone, we noticed that there was, there was hens taking broods into our grazed fescue pastures. But there had to be a rotation with the cows. There had to be a disturbance enough to open it up to where – the, the grazing intensity was probably greater than a lot of people might like, but the rest period was longer. So it was really looking at, okay, there's, there's some areas that the cows aren't grazing. There's a little bit of clumpiness effect to it. There's some trampling, especially in the, along the trees um, in the shade. There's bare ground. There's lots of insects because of the manure. Um, but there has to be rest. There can't be... A mob of cows right there the whole time. The cows have to be moving and leaving areas that are open, that are, have attracted the insects that they're not in. Sure. Right. The, the majority of the fescue belt, you know, unfortunately is, is two extremes. It's not doing Either that. grazed, yeah, it's grazed um, to a pool table. Um, you know, right now we've got some growth in a lot of fescue pasture just because we've had enough rain to keep up. Yep. But it'll it'll shortly. I mean, it's it's over 90 degrees the next two weeks here in Missouri. Yep. The fescue's going to look like wheat straw pretty quick. It's going to quit growing. Yep. And they're going to have it nubbed down to nothing. Yep. And then the other extreme is no grazing on the fescue, which right now is happening. They're, getting, they're cutting it for hay. That's right. Which is a which is a death sentence. Either the hens that's still sitting on a nest, you know, uh, for some reason, the late nester or the re-nester, or the little. If there, there's not going to be two-week poults trying to run around out there. If it's if it hasn't been grazed and it hasn't been hayed yet, it's too thick anyway. But yeah, so then it goes down to nothing. It's going to get cut, and now it's an inch tall. That's not providing any benefit. So un- unfortunately, for the most part, we have two extremes in our fescue belt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and we're just a little, you know, there's just some little changes that could help. Yep. But oh yeah, it it takes some generational changes. And the generational management changes, which are tough. Yeah, yeah. Those, those that is a tough one to crack. Even, you know, from, you know, the, the the grazing, changing it to convincing people to do more natives and or mixed native forbs. It's, you know, sometimes, you know, I mean, it it is a tough sell. Um, it, some of the economics do pay out, um, especially in drought years. But it's 
you know, grandpa did it this way, daddy did it this way. It, it's, you know, it's difficult to make those generational changes. Um, but, you know, there is, you know, there, there's a lot of benefit in doing that, not only for turkeys, but quail. And there's, you know, there's a lot of, the, and the cool thing is there's a lot of people thinking about it right now because as, as Adam, you and you, Matt and I saw going through the Dakotas, the name they're not making any more grassland and it's going away fast and there's a lot of people thinking about it so this turkey problem coupled with the grassland conversion problem is gaining a ton of conservation interest from a bunch of different groups from songbird groups to pollinator groups to turkey groups so the attention is there and and a lot of times that's been my frustration, and I know Kyle and I have, have had long talks on hunting trips about our frustration about getting people to see, to understand the scope of the problem yeah. with ground-nesting birds and um, how to how to change that. And we've done what we can do, but but the thing is now it's starting to gain traction. So <laughs> is that frustrating to you guys, being the fact that you're? You're so passionate about quail, and this has been happening to the quail for years, and it really didn't get the attention it 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 should have. And then you roll in, and the turkeys start to do this, and people are like, "Oh, we got to do something." Well, actually, we're I'll kind of say we're the opposite. I mean, we're looking at the turkey thing. We're excited that that people are concerned. But I don't. I still don't think there's enough panic. Frank and I still are looking at it, saying, "I don't think people realize they're going to wake up and it's going to be the next quail." We watched the quail thing happen without, you know. By the time the panic hit, it was too late. Yeah. And you know, we're still fighting through it. Uh, honestly, I, yeah, I think it's gaining traction and people are talking about it. But you got to think about the circles that we're talking in. Yeah, no doubt. Um, on a on a you know, nationwide scale, man, I don't know that there's still enough concern for the turkeys. I'm worried about 20 years from now, we're going to wake up and say, hmm, we should have done something back in 2020. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah I, I think you're right. I think you're right. And, and you know, here's here's one of the things that, that I fear is people can get complacent. So in Missouri last year, we had a – a uh, historically bad harvest, uh, 20, 2021, right? 2022. Yep. So this season was up a little bit. So people, I, I fear there's some, com- there may be some complacency. People think, Oh, it's not that bad. Our, our, our harvest rate increased, but you know, whatever, for whatever reason that was, I think that's an artifact of just this year. I don't think that's any indication of some long-term, we're on the upswing, you know, going well, forward. That was we're, just a blip. We're up five percent from a thirty-five year low. Yeah. yeah. So, and I'm not trying to be Mister Negative here. I'm trying to be a realist, though. Like, okay, right. we're five percent above thirty-five year low. That's still not a good place to be. We yeah. need to ring the bell of concern, and that's what we're right. doing. That's what we try to do every day in our jobs. Yeah. yeah. And and that's that's important. We've got to have, we've got to keep pushing this and not get complacent. Not, not 
see some kind of temporary bump, it's like, hey, man, things are turning the corner. We've got to really, you know, keep keep the pressure on. And, and where we got to start is what can we do to increase the amount of brood habitat that we get on the ground first. But also, more fundamental than that is we've got to come to some kind of a consensus or at least an understanding of what proper brood habitat is Bingo. for each stage of life each stage each week of these broods life yeah I, I, after i posted those videos i'm not convinced that the majority of people know absolutely that that's that's a core problem is just general education within the the turkey enthusiast world people are excited and they want to help and do something but you got to know what is right and what isn't yeah and, you got to be let's, able to identify quality habitat. Let's hear, I want to hear you guys describe, you paint a picture in your head of what brood rearing habitat, great brood rearing habitat for a one week old turkey poult looks like. Kyle, you go, take it. Well, for me, I, I'm going to, paint a couple different pictures so if i'm in a grassland or an old field situation it's gonna have to be at least where we're at midwest okay so high rainfall high high humidity um it's it's a diversity of plants i want lots of broadleafs i want I'm, I'm talking you know 30 40 50 species of broadleaf plants in this thing um some grass is fine. Don't really care. You're standing um, in a, a lot spot. Of You're standing in a spot looking out across the landscape right now, right? Yep. Okay. Yep. And uh, so, you know, I, I've got a, and I'm talking about spaces between plants, the, the, the plants being several inches apart. Yeah. Uh, these broadleaf plants and I've got bare dirt. Well, the only way I'm going to have that is that had to have been disturbed in the last 12 months. Yeah. Um, so if I didn't burn that strip disket, do something to it, then it, it's not brood habitat. Um, yeah. I, my own farm, I burned some of my CRP fields this year and some I didn't. Well, those ones I didn't, I have no, <laughs> there's no assumption by me that any turkeys will be brooding in those. And the ones I did burn are only going to be available for a certain amount of time. They're going to get too thick because of our rainfall. So my my preference actually so there's there's one disturbed open grasslands that's got pretty good diversity okay yeah my my second one that to me is easier is the woodland setting yeah because it doesn't have to if i've got a decent woodland i may have not it may be 2 3 years since burn but it's still open enough i still have enough plants to attract yeah. insects and it's still open enough for mobility through it and I think um, that the big trick there is is your variance in woodland, and I put that in air quotes, because, like, on our farm, our woodlands tilt more towards savanna-like, so there's more sunlight. So, therefore, like, the stuff that we burned last year and then roll into this year, it's almost got the, – the vegetation is almost yep. too too much that I'm like, it's yep. leaning more towards nesting than it is yep. brood-rearing. It may be okay brood-rearing – as they get older, but right now, as a young poult, it ain't. It's not ideal. Yeah, I was in some woodland today that I'm talking. In some cases, you know, there was say 
a foot, maybe 20 inches between plants yeah. in the timber. Yeah. I'll take that all day long. No and, the, and the plants were about shin to knee high. Oh, that's beautiful. Like, oh, I mean, hundreds of acres of this. And I was telling them, the guy I was with, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I wish we had 10 million acres of this. No This doubt. is it. And this how is was what that we managed? Right what, what was the management well, the last three years of that? Uh, thinning and fire. Thinning so, and fire, yeah, go right, figure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that hard. Why do we continue yeah, to no. struggle? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, Frank, do you got anything you want to add to that? Like first first week poult, what is what is optimal yeah. bird rearing? So, you got any ideas to add? No, I mean, I'm I'm looking at, at something that is that has got a canopy of plants. So I like. I like ragweed is really good. Um, something that kind of has a, an umbrella effect yeah. almost. Uh, giant ragweed is good as long as it's in the short phase, as long as it's not tall yet. Yep. The common ragweed is good. Because, you know, the, the key thing is those hens, as Kyle mentioned earlier, they have to be able to see out of it because they're not going to feel safe if they can't see out of it. Yeah. So, so you've got to have this sparse ground cover. And, and I want it to be, I mean, Kyle painted a perfect picture because what he painted is a, is a landscape that dries out quickly after dew, dries out quickly after rain. They can get to a spot that's got some sunlight. They can sun there, get the morning dew off of them. You know, um, they can't do that in a clover field. Yeah. It's just it's just not going to happen. So I'm gonna. It's it, it, it's. A, go ahead. I mean, no, I, I mean, I'm, that's exactly it. I got excited because I'm trying to think of some new areas for guys. So on a cattle farm, a guy who's got a cattle farm, you're saying, well, what do I have that's brood rearing? And I think of an area that probably where you wintered your cows, where you, you fed hay, you got a lot of disturbance in that, in that seed bank, in that soil, and then the cows are now on fresh pasture. And this is growing back up in weeds and there's some, you know, even old corral sites or old working lots. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's oh, growing yeah. back up in some, some weeds. And you're like, oh, that's just kind of a weed patch, Grandpa. Well, that's where turkeys are. That's where they could be anyway. Um, yeah. The other one I really want to talk about is is your open acres that aren't qualifying as pasture. They aren't qualified. They're not forest. They're not woodland. They're not grassland. These are just these old loading docks or these old the or even food plots. And so, like, I want to yeah. say food plot acres. What is ideal brood rearing in a food plot setting? Like, it's part of your rotation. You do plant it once a year or, tw- or twice a year. But ideally, I think of one that you planted once and you planted it last spring. You're coming up on a year and it's fallow corn or it's fallow soybeans. And you haven't planted it and now you've got just weeds growing up. Yeah. Yeah, so in my mind, that's that's what makes good brood habitat because if you're planting some kind of um, clover or or annual grass, those are going to be even even if they go fallow, those are going to be more difficult to manage for those newly hatched to one week old, two week old chicks. Now, if you've got a corn food plot or a soybean food plot. Those can be ideal the next year. I mean, I've seen some awesome-looking brood habitat of a Roundup-ready soybean or Roundup-ready corn that was standing, and, man, it came back into mare sale and ragweed. And it's like, 
all right, this is sweet looking stuff. Yeah. That's much easier to manage at the proper height, at the proper density than some kind of forage. Yeah. No doubt. And that and that's where I wanted to really on this podcast talk about that because if it's open acres, uh, the the big problem I have is you know a guy's got two hundred acres, he's got f- five acres that's food plot or five acres that's open, and all five of them, two of them are clover, perennial clover, thick as the hair on a dog's back, and the other is thick as the hair on a dog's back. Annual plantings that they planted in the fall. It's like where's the brood rearing in this? It's okay if you've thinned the forest and burned a part of it, and you have brood rearing out there. But if you're not touching that and, and you're planting all of this, don't plant on a, a great trajectory of, of turkey population. Yeah, absolutely. You're going to have to figure out a way to, if you're going to have limited open acres, we, we know that there is some preference at certain times to use those open acres. Um uh, rather than canopied sites, and that goes for deer too. They're gonna, they would rather fawn in an open, um, an old field uh, grassland setting than they would in, in even really nice managed timber, managed woodland. So yeah. that, that stuff's important for various species. So if, if you only have five acres of open lands, you might not want to be planting five acres of food plots annually or or managing, yeah. Yeah. You're going to have to figure out some kind of rotation or something or get really, really aggressive on some of your timber acres and open up a little bit more. I would want more than five acres out of 200 being open. That's 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 going to be tough if you think you're going to maximize turkey. Yeah. Period. Or Just deer or quail or anything. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's yeah. that's pretty that's going to be pretty tough. Yeah. Yeah. What other any other points in this research you wanted to cover? Well, the the only the only point that I really want to bring up is hold on that's my son just sorry Logan likes to <laughs> it's all good it's all good yeah um, um, so so the 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 point that I want to bring bring up is so we had twenty so in this particular study you had twenty two percent nest success um so you got bad nest success but only like I mentioned kind of mentioned it in passing a little bit. But they monitored 94 broods at the start of the study, and only 34 of the 94 made it to 28 days, right? So about only a third. So they lost two-thirds of their broods. So not only were they at 22% nest success, 21.9, only a third of the broods were making it to um, 28 days and a brood that makes it to 28 days could be one chick you're not talking about four or five a successful brood if there was one chick that made it to 28 days that was a successful brood so you can see that the depth of the problem here that the wild turkey is facing and and this wasn't just one site this was combined from texas all the way to south carolina so the point is, this is a call to action. Man, we've we've got to do what we can to to shine a light on this issue, but also we've got to really focus and, as a conservation community, really understand what brood rearing habitat is. That's the tip of the spear of where we're going to make a difference, and and really come come to a consensus of guys. This is what it looks like, and this is how to do it. Let's try to make it happen. No doubt. 
And on a positive note, hey, there there is some interest. There's some things moving in the right direction too. You know, I mean, I I am excited every time I see on social media more people talking about it. I I'm encouraged that maybe there's enough people rattling the ringing the bell, rattling the chains. You know, uh, there's wires over wildlife program that's trying to, you know, do millions of miles of of uh, utility right of ways into native plantings and and there's all kinds of different things like that that's gaining traction so there is there is some positive hope out there but i mean everybody that has any access to making a difference and and doing having any effect on acreage is going to have to get to work on this or we're going to wake up and be in trouble a couple decades from now yeah it may not even be a couple decades from now if it continues this quickly yeah yeah well fellas if you got anything else to add, um, nope. have at nope. it. But Just I, I, once again, yeah. we're here to remind everybody that we got to get to work. Indeed. Yeah. Yep, yep. It's never ending. Never ending. But by golly, we get more and more people doing it, even if it's outside of the hunter's space. It's like guys who are managing their cows differently, cutting their timber differently, managing their timber differently. And we all start doing it. I said on the other podcast that I recorded today, but it dropped last week. I'm tired. I feel like I'm. Ti- I, I feel like it's just we're all sitting around armchair quarterbacking. This is the problem. This is the problem. This is the problem. We're all just chat, 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 and it's like okay, enough talk. Grab the rope and start pulling. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Stop leaning on the shovels and get to work. <laughs> we're not yep. gonna. We're not going to plan our way out of it or have uh, meetings until we. We're going to continue to have meetings till we figure out why we can't get anything done. Well, it's time <laughs> yeah. for some action. Yeah, no doubt. Time for some action. So, yeah. guys, thanks for joining us, uh, audience. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you guys joining us once again each and every week right here on Land Legacy Podcast. We'll catch you next week.